If you'd grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, we'll be this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be at the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29. Let me read our passage for us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we know you to be both majestic and merciful. So we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would inform and reform our worship as you've made us to worship you, as you've saved us by your loving kindness and grace to worship you. Lord, and as you know how we want to worship you, teach us, train us, strengthen us, that we might glorify you and encourage each other every day that we gather. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a couple reasons why we are here this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. The first reason is that it's been a personal goal of mine in 2024 to do a deep dive into the ocean of church history. And so I'm going to go a little bit nerdy here on you, but for so far, the first three weeks of the year, I've been learning and studying ancient church worship services. Yeah, pretty fascinating, isn't it? I've been fascinated, I really have, to learn what the church has thought about worship, how she has practiced worship through the centuries, and how that might inform and shape how we worship today. So I'm a bit of a nerd, but that's part of the reason why. Well, I'm not a, that's not, because I'm a nerd isn't the reason why we're here, but it's partly why. The second is that on Tuesday, if you were doing your Abide devotional program, you were in this chapter. And when I was in this chapter, there were two verses that stood out to me, verse 28 and 29. So I've been thinking about these verses a little bit. Another is that Pastor Jeff got sick. And so while I was hoping to come to church and learn from Matthew 24, I now find myself in Hebrews chapter 12, and so do you. But earlier this week, there was another reason. On the latest Ask Pastor John, John Piper, on the latest Ask Pastor John podcast, it popped up on my screen with a title that captured my attention. It was called On Coffee Sipping in the Sanctuary. On Coffee Sipping in the Sanctuary. Now, I don't know about you, That's either Christian clickbait or being really creative with a title. But either way, when I read that, I thought, I have to hear what he's going to say about this. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you listened to that podcast as well. But I digress. It turns out that last fall, John Piper 
tweeted, when tweeting was still a thing, not Xing or tweeting on X, but he tweeted out these verses in Hebrews chapter 12 along with a very provocative question. That question was this. Is it time that we reconsider coffee in the sanctuary? Does it fit? That's what he was saying. And you can imagine the rest is history because once that got sent out into the ether world, all was lost. You obviously had people who loved it and people who hated it. And there were many of them, brothers and sisters, maybe even in the same church. The host, Tony Ranke, said that after a couple weeks of that tweet, they had already received 1,000 retweets, 1,500 comments, 3,000 likes, and listen, 2.7 million views. So literally 2.7 million people interacted with the question, should we reassess coffee sipping in the sanctuary? <laughs> he said it sparked feature articles on Fox News in the States as well as Daily Mail in the United Kingdom. Now, I, for the sake of illustration, <laughs> not to spite Piper, but because I'm free in Christ and he would know it, I just wonder how something like this can spark a global conversation. Actually, something like this. That would cause 2.7 million people, many of them drinking coffee when they read it, probably, <laughs> to wonder. I mean, does it make you wonder? Obviously, the question was provocative, and, and that's not really the issue. There's more to it, isn't there? Well, Piper did a good job of nuancing his response on the podcast. He obviously clarified it's not about adding rules into the church, what you can and can't do, what you can and can't drink, what you can and can't wear. He said it's not about rules. At the heart of the issue is the reverence of the heart. That's what he was getting at. That's the conversation he was wanting to have. He clarified right away that he wasn't disregarding the normal, everyday earthiness of the Christian life. You know, even the fact that many of us worship God, commune with God, day in and day out, very casually. How? In our pajamas with a cup of coffee. That's often how we worship God during our own private devotional times. Coffee and casual dress. So obviously, it's not about what you're drinking or what you're wearing or these external rules. He's asking about reverence in the heart. He says, the heart of the matter is not a coffee mug in hand. It's the absence of the kind of experience with God that would make a Christian soul long for regular encounters with God and his people. Did you hear that? He said, we ought to have these regular encounters with God and his people that are so profoundly satisfying at our depths that with God's majesty and sweetness, with the seriousness of our joy and the weightiness of his glory, he wonders, would a coffee mug simply feel strangely out of place? End quote. Again, for the sake of clarity, having coffee in the sanctuary is not a sin. 
It's not about making more rules. In fact, Piper wasn't advocating that churches switch to a high church, liturgical, formal order of service. That's, that's not even what he was asking for. He literally was wondering out loud and inviting us to do the same. He was wondering out loud if our worship services line up with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. That's the essence. That's the essence. To use some of his words, he's suggesting that our Sunday gatherings potentially have become so casual and so chipper, happy clappy, that we've, we've lost the reality that when we show up to worship a holy God, it ought to be an awe-inspiring, mouth-shutting, soul-satisfying encounter with the God of majesty and mercy that both terrifies us and comforts us. He's suggesting that Sundays ought to have an atmosphere filled less with smoke machine entertainment and flippant attitudes about God and approaching him. And rather, they ought to be marked by this word-rich worship. Passionate preaching from the whole counsel of God, setting forth the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, his supremacy and his sufficiency, such that the grander beauty, glory of God is on display, and it leads God's people, even if they showed up with cold and hard hearts, to ultimate reverence of God and gladness in God. So Piper and I may not agree on the outcome and how this works out. And I may not even like the way the question was posed. I'm not a fan of debate like that. But I do wholeheartedly agree with the essence of where he's going. And so that combination of studying Hebrews 12, studying church history or worship services... Pastor Jeff being sick, and here Piper's pastoral concern compelling him to start a conversation about worship. The combination of that has led me to start a conversation about worship. Church, I want to look at this text. Because what we see in Piper, and what I want to embody today is exactly what we find at the end of the book of Hebrews. You find pastoral concern for acceptable worship pastoral concern for acceptable worship. If I was to give this message a title, that would be it. Pastoral concern for acceptable worship. This morning, we're going to explore a passage that it doesn't say everything about worship, but it does say something. We ought to listen to what it says. Our aim today is for God to help us understand what he deems acceptable worship, and then for us to learn how to Offer him acceptable worship. And Lord willing, in the next couple weeks or so, or the next time I'm in the pulpit, I would love for us to return here and consider very practically how we at Cornerstone seek to offer him acceptable worship and how you and I can make the most of our Lord's Day gatherings. But for today, our concern is pastoral concern for acceptable worship. Let's talk about point number one, pastoral concern. Pastoral concern. The phrase that opens up our text, verse 28, look in your Bibles. What, what's the first phrase that you see? Therefore. Therefore. Now, this word therefore is a major conclusion 
in the entire book of Hebrews. And it gives us a little bit of insight into the man who wrote Hebrews. In fact, we don't really even know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, we don't know a ton about him. We know a few things about him, but we don't know. We don't actually even know if he was a pastor. But what we do know is that the guy who wrote Hebrews, the human author, was absolutely concerned about these people's worship. It seems that as you look through the book, he knew these folks. He, he knew their circumstances. He, he could affirm their faith. He knew the details about their struggles and temptations. He was able to recount their past successes. He was evil, even able to bring in some of the present ways that they were falling into sin and kind of turning away from Jesus. And so he knew them well enough to speak to the matters of their life and faith. And so Hebrews is... is is this expression of a concern about somebody's worship, somebody he knows. Now look, I've, I get to preach or teach at different locations, sometimes different conferences or different settings. I always find it so hard to speak to people's lives, to speak into their faith when I don't know who they are. I love getting to stand up here and preach because I can look at you and I, I know who you are or I'm getting to know who you are. I see what you struggle with. And so sometimes up here, things aren't in my notes that as I interact with you and the spirit is at work in me, I might say something because I caught your eye. Or because I know what you just texted me this last week. Or I know who you lost a few weeks ago. And so there's this intimacy in the way in which we encourage each other. That's what the guy did in the book of Hebrews. He was so concerned with their worship and he knew them so well that he did the best thing he possibly could do. Do you know what he did? He wrote an entire book, which many sometimes think is a sermon, a tailored sermon to meet their needs. He wrote an entire book. Guess what? About how Jesus is better than everything in every way. Now look, there's a lot of biblical scholars and commentators who don't attend Cornerstone who would tell you that the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. In fact, at the opening of Hebrews, it said Jesus is better. He's the better revelation of God. He is the eternal and final word of God in which this word to the world has now taken flesh and come into the world in order that he might reveal God. That's how this opens. He goes on to say Jesus is better than angels. You know, these like fiery, warrior-like being spirit beings that people in worship, people in scripture want to bow down and worship. He says, no, Jesus is better. He's a better name for he is the son of God. He's the heir. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is better than giving into temptation. He's better than succumbing to the deceitfulness of sin. He's better than Moses. He gives you a better rest than some real estate in the Middle East. He gives you uh, a better covenant for he is a better high priest of a better priesthood he's a better mediator with better promises he offers you something better than the shadows of the old covenant right if, if I was to stand here I can see my shadow and if you were to try to come up and have fellowship with my shadow and ask my shadow who I am and spend time with my shadow that would be really awkward for one but it would be really foolish two because why would you fellowship with my shadow when I'm right here 
If you want to know me, know me, not my shadow. And so the author is saying, know God in Christ. Not the shadows of bulls and goats and sacrifices and temples and priesthoods. No, no, Christ. His better sacrifice that speaks a better word of forgiveness. It speaks a final word of mercy. For he offered himself on a better altar, the cross of Calvary, through a better temple, which is the heavenly temple, which the earthly one is modeled after. He's a better example of faith than all of those in the hall of faith. He is better than your freedom, because even if you're in prison, you're still free in Christ. He's better than your marriage that ought to be sanctified. He's better than the money that you love. He's better than your pastors that frustrate you and who you complain about. He's better than your house, and he's better than the city you live in. Guys, that's the book of Hebrews. And by the end of the book of Hebrews, you might just find yourself saying something like, well, Jesus seems to be better than everything in every way. But here's the point. And here's where it ties back to his pastoral concern. His aim, the guy's aim in writing Hebrews, his aim was not to get people to say Jesus is better. His aim was to help them experience it. Help them believe it and help them live in light of it. Because guess what? Do you know what he knew? If the conclusion and the end goal is their worship, their faithfulness, the way that you help a person worship is not merely talking about worship, but showing them that Jesus is better. You're showing them that the things that compete for their worship just fade into nothingness when compared to the wonder of Jesus Christ. See, he knew that their worship would take care of itself if he showed them Jesus. So his pastoral concern in some way now leads me to my pastoral concern. I'm not preaching this text because I want to join a debate. I'm not preaching this text because I agree or disagree with John Piper. I'm not preaching this text because I think you should leave your coffee mugs at home or you should all bring them. That's not what I'm preaching about. Nor am I preaching because I think that our services are casual and entertaining. That's not the case. I'm preaching this text on this day is because I want to worship God how he tells me to worship him. I want to worship him in the way that he prescribes. And I'm so painfully aware that I often don't do that. Sometimes my worship is all shell and no peanut. You know how frustrating it is to put your hand into a bag of peanuts and then crack it open and realize nothing's there? It's pretty disappointing when it's empty. Sometimes that's how I show up on a Sunday. Sometimes my worship is half-hearted. It's distracted. It's selfish. Sometimes it's performance-based. Sometimes I just want to be entertained. So I say, Jeff, entertain me. And then when he doesn't entertain me, I go, I don't know that I like that sermon. It wasn't entertaining enough. I def 
How could I do that to my brother? How, how could I expect the word of God to entertain me? Feel like the guy from Gladiator ought to stand up in the middle of the sanctuary and say, Rick, are you not entertained? <laughs> Sometimes I just want to entertain you. You know what? Sometimes I just really love the way that my guitar sounds and Jared's guitar sounds and the ways that the harmonies work. And I really stop worshiping and I'm just kind of hoping that you like it. Sometimes I tell a joke just to get you to laugh, not to worship God. Sometimes I show up here because I have to. I work here. You pay me. <laughs> you support me. Is that why I should show up on a Sunday? Sometimes it takes me 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes it takes me to the second service just to finally get my heart right, warmed, amazed at God. I've been spending hours trying to get that, and it takes me to the second service. And then I have to deal with all the shame for having worshipped him in an entire worship service with the wrong heart. Guys, I'm a really complicated person, if you can't tell. There's, there's a lot happening on with it inside of me. But look, when I think about those things, it concerns me. And then there's you. And there's you. I know you. I know what it's like to be human. I know the worship wars that go on in your heart. I know that when you show up, we are competing for your heart's affection to give glory to God. And the moment we leave, and the moment you leave, with the benediction on your ears and in your heart, it doesn't take very long before you're not having any peace, before it feels like God's face is turned against me, for I feel cursed, not blessed, or I go live out of a different identity than my identity in Christ. And so it makes me sad when I don't see you the next week or the next week. It makes me sad when I think about your pain and suffering and your sadness and the things that cast doubt on God's promises in your life. I get sad in all the efforts to try to persuade you that Jesus is better and then he's not. I get sad when I think about the fact that you can lose your first love and your love for Christ can grow cold. And if I shouldn't be concerned about that, then I don't know what I'm doing as a pastor. My concern is that we would worship God how he's made us to, how he saved us to, how he tells us to, and ultimately because we want to. How could I do anything else when he's that good? How could I give my attention and my affections to anything else when he is that wonderful? And you know what? I forget it. And so guess what? I have to keep coming back, not forsaking the assembling, as is the habit of some, but making sure I show up here listening to you sing, seeing bread broken, wine poured out, having prayers prayed on my behalf, having the word of God open to me so that my soul sees Jesus is better. I need that, and I need you to need that. God doesn't need our worship, but he has made us to worship him. And he tells us that he is concerned with our worship. And he's even so concerned that he would send his own son to redeem that worship. 
And he'd even give us pastors and shepherds who lovingly concerned would express their heart and lead us back to seeing Jesus. Because when we see Jesus rightly, we can offer acceptable worship. That's our second point, acceptable worship. Pastoral concern for acceptable worship. Let's look at the rest of the text. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That word acceptable means well-pleasing, proper, fitting. It means that there's worship that is pleasing to God and there's worship that isn't pleasing. Now that might come as an affront to you. It, it does to me. What? God, you're going to tell me how to worship? I, I'm an American. Don't you know that? I do what I want. I'm free. I guess I'm not that free. In Christ, I'm set free now to worship God as he made me to and as he calls me to. I don't want to offer unacceptable, displeasing worship. I want to offer acceptable worship, pleasing to him. And so it leads us to the question, well, what is acceptable worship? <laughs> Who gets to determine what it is? How do we know if we're doing it or not? Well, I can answer that with three G's. I think the text answers it with three G's. How do we know that we're offering acceptable worship? What is acceptable worship? Number one, it's God-given. Acceptable worship is offered in light of the God-given revelation in his word. In other words, what God commands, we ought to do. And what he doesn't command in our worship, we're not free to do. In fact, if I was to survey the Old Testament for you, you could see in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve's worship turns into self-worship, doesn't it? They do what they want. That's autonomy. That's rebellion. By the time you get to the next chapter, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, both give an offering to the Lord. They both worship him. One is accepted. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is not. The text in Genesis doesn't tell us why, but it does give us a clue as to what was going on. It seemed that the Lord had regard for Abel's and he didn't have regard, that's the text, didn't have regard for Cain's because Cain was harboring anger and a root of bitterness was taking root in his life and it was springing up in anger and resentment against God and against his brother. And so the point of Genesis 4 is to say his worship was not acceptable because he was harboring sinful anger in his heart. God doesn't accept autonomous worship. God doesn't accept worship that is flowing from the sinful, angry heart. Exodus shows us that God doesn't accept worship with images. That's the second commandment. When they get out of the Exodus, what do they do? They build a golden calf, an idol, an image. He says that's not acceptable. Leviticus 10, what did Nadab and Abihu do? They offered strange the word unauthorized fire, and they were consumed. Proper, acceptable worship means you can't authorize yourself to offer God worship he didn't authorize. You don't have that right. He will be worshipped how he says he will be worshipped. You cannot invent ways to worship him. You can't assume that he's okay with it because it's not there. 
I mean, I could go on the rest of the Old Testament, but everybody's doing right in their own eyes. Worship mixed with paganism and idolatry. High places, goat idols, statutes, Asherah poles, the household gods and charms, pretend priests. Guys, that's not acceptable proper worship, is it? By the time you get to Malachi, they're offering worthless worship. They're sacrificing blind, lame, sick animals instead of their best, their first fruits. At the heart of worship in Malachi, where the people of God had gotten to, was this. Why give God my best in worship when I can give him what's convenient for me? Why give God best when I can give what's convenient? And so then you get into the New Testament and acceptable worship is done in spirit and truth. It's done in teaching and admonishing one another. It's done in personal ways and corporate ways. And here in our text, it's done with reverence and awe. So the first mark of acceptable worship is that it agrees with God's given commands and instruction. The second G is gratitude. Gratitude. Our text tells us that we ought to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Acceptable worship doesn't flow from a perfect heart, but from a grateful one. Romans 121 says that at the heart of idolatry is neither honoring God nor giving him thanks. Spurgeon told us that if we would only think, we would thank. And I was thinking a little bit about this. This last week on Friday night, it was my wife and I anniversary, and we decided to watch uh, The Father of the Bride. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that. Father of the Bride, Steve Martin, hilarious show. I was hardly walking when it first came out, but now I'm the dad of two little girls. And so watching Steve Martin struggle with his little girl growing up and getting married, having a hard time dealing with it, 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 it really captivated me. In fact, scene by scene, as I laughed and as I cried, my desire to be entertained that night suddenly was replaced by a thankful heart for my daughters. I know that Laura and Emily will someday be grown and gone. And so I had showed up to watch that movie for entertainment. And I left with gratitude. Gratitude to God. Friends, I don't know if you recognize this, but every Sunday, you spend about an hour, an hour and a half, unlike any other hour, hour and a half in the whole week. And you come and you behold the drama of the gospel. We preach it, we sing it, we pray it, we proclaim it, we see it, we taste it, we speak it, we receive it, we offer it. It is all the drama of God sending his son to bear the debt, the sin, and the shame of sinners. And then rising again in order to secure our worship. And as you do it, over and over and over, maybe you show up coming to be entertained, but guess what? The goal is that your heart would be softened and grateful for the precious gift of Christ. We are to be grateful for an unshakable kingdom. That unshakable kingdom will not be lost. Now we're in the day of judgment. Whether the world shakes our, our faith, whether the ground feels unstable in America in 2024, it doesn't matter. Our kingdom is unshakable in Christ. So we grow in gratitude. 
And finally, the third G is gravity. Gravity. We see the two words here, reverence and awe in our text. Reverence and awe are synonymous. It's the weight we feel when we recognize greatness or we're near to glory. Kind of like going through the Beartooth Pass and looking back down the, the valley. Or standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon. Reverence and awe is the posture of respect that fits the occasion, fits the person, fits the purpose. You know, kind of like you wouldn't hold a carnival at the site of a, a school shooting. It would be improper, irreverential, not a posture of respect. And so the text says when we show up and we behold God, we worship him with a grateful heart according to what he's given us in his word, with the weight of gravity of his glory and grace upon us. For our God, verse 29 says, is a consuming fire. This is a quote of Deuteronomy 24, showing us holy jealousy for our worship. He is righteously yearning for our worship. Not because he needs it, but because he made us for it. And because he is lovely. And when he displays himself and you get a glimpse of this, you can't help but praise him. Listen, fire consumes, engulfs, and destroys. But fire also warms, gives light, and life. And just like the sun sits at the center of our solar system, a blazing, consuming fire, so the sun exists that you and I would know what verse 29 really means. We'd get a tangible way to understand how God is a consuming fire. Listen, the sun exists for a lot of reasons, but I think it's because you and I ought to worship the God who is a consuming fire. You cannot live without his light. You cannot live without his resources, his sustenance. You cannot live without what he provides for you. You look to him to light your darkest days. And your whole life revolves around the Son, the Son, Jesus. And so acceptable worship is what aligns with God-given instructions, flows from a grateful heart, and is offered in a posture of profound reverence with an attitude of awe in the presence of God. So listen, you can do whatever you want with your coffee cup. <laughs> You can bring it here, you can throw it away. It doesn't matter to me. But I would simply say, if your coffee cup gets in the way of Jesus, if your coffee cup doesn't allow you to hold your hands open to God in praise, if your coffee cup doesn't allow you to extend your hand in a greeting of grace to somebody who's hurt you, sitting right next to you, if the coffee cup doesn't, open your, doesn't allow you to open your hands and give freely, then ditch it, throw it away. You know why? Because Jesus is better than even a coffee cup. We worship him from the heart. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in light of all that we have in Christ, we thank you for this kingdom that we've received that cannot be shaken. We thank you for the privilege of offering you worship with reverence and awe. We praise you that you are at work to inform and reform our worship. And we pray that the fruit of your word today would have lasting effects in our life, the life of our children, the life of this church body, 
and are in our city and beyond the borders of what we call home. For your kingdom and glory, we pray. Amen.